Shape Moda designs women's trousers to suit everybody's shape to get the perfect fit. Just imagine that as soon as you wear a pair of trousers, they feel like the best piece of clothing ever. Dress for your body shape with Shape Moda and make a huge change in your life now. Go to shapemoda.com and find out which body shape you have. Shape Moda gives you the perfect fit. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. In this episode, I am really delighted to bring you an interview with an extraordinary woman, someone that you knew from the headlines as Miss D, but who we now know by her full name, Amy Dunn. It was a very, very horrible situation to have a phone call with a solicitor and next of all be the front page of articles and on the Daily News. And before we get into the fact that I was Miss D, my personal tragedies that happened in my family were being broadcast over the Daily News. Much more uh, from Amy Dunn later in the podcast. But before we get to that, I have to mention that this week a long running saga came to an end and came to an unsatisfactory end, it has to be said, for many of us, for many of you who have serious issues with the relocation of the National Maternity Hospital from Hollis Street in Dublin to St. Vincent's in Dublin 4. This week, that relocation was approved by Cabinet with the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, also revealing that the government intends to expedite the process around building the new hospital. In giving his decision, Mr Donnelly also addressed concerns that the term clinically appropriate, and he said clarification on what this phrase meant was added to the government decision. And the clarification in the memo which was reported by the Irish Times, states that the Cabinet agrees that the term clinically appropriate allows the new hospital to provide all legally permissible procedures in the areas of maternity, gynaecology, obstetrics, neonatology and gender recognition. And that is not expected that the new NMH will provide cardiac or orthopaedic surgery, for example. He said, I think it has been addressed. I don't think it's correct to say the concerns that have been raised haven't been addressed. The deal was robust two weeks ago. It has been worked on for many years, poured over by doctors, midwives and lawyers. And if something had come up over the last two weeks that the HSE, the National Maternity Hospital or St. Vincent's generally had missed, we, of course, were open to addressing it. Now, this is, as I said, a long saga. So a bit of background. Last April, the Religious Sisters of Charity transferred its shareholding in St. Vincent's Healthcare Group to another entity, St. Vincent's Holding, which will lease the land on which it's proposed to build the new National Maternity Hospital for 299 years. Now, there are fears in some quarters that potential lingering religious influence could mean abortions or fertility treatment would not be allowed to take place at the new hospital. And questions have also been raised about why the land is not being sold or gifted to the state. And all these concerns have been dismissed by the government and by the hospital's supporters in the medical community, including the former master of Hollis Street, Rona Mahoney, who was obviously a much respected woman and was very involved in repeal at the time. So just to bring you a flavour of some of the opposition to the Cabinet's decision, 
Obviously, the cabinet are fully behind it. Micheál Martin has defended the move, describing it as a good decision for the women of Ireland and newborn babies in the future. But like I said, there's been lots of opposition. And Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald said that instead of ensuring a clean-cut transaction where the site would come into public ownership, the deal signed off on by Cabinet ensures that the hospital has a private landlord under a very convoluted ownership model. And Mary Lou Macdonald said this is the wrong decision. It falls short of protecting the state's proposed investment of between £800 and £1 of taxpayers' money. She said it's obvious that the best way to safeguard this investment and to allay public concern is for government to secure the transfer of the land into state ownership, a clear and explicit agreement that ensures that we get a publicly built National Maternity Hospital on publicly owned land. There were some Green TDs who also raised concerns. Green Party TD Patrick Costello said in a statement that the decision was a wrong one and the failure to remove the phrase clinically appropriate was an affront to women. Speaking to RTE's drive time, Green Party TD Nessa Hurricane said... Because it's a cabinet decision, there was no democratic vehicle to register your objection to these things. And one of the ways to do it is to deviate from the whip. This is a 299-year deal. This is generations of women. And I would have liked this opportunity to have it on the record for those 299 years that I object to this. It isn't good. She also said there's a perception that maybe I'm just being difficult Here, on the other hand, I'm increasingly realising that it's important for difficult women to stay in the room. Roisin Shortall, who is the Social Democrats co-leader, asked what was the point of the last two weeks. She said, just two weeks ago, you, the Taoiseach, said you wanted the documents to be scrutinised and you indicated that you're open to changes being made. But it is quite clear now that it was actually a charade. And the Dublin Northwest TD said the overall attitude of the government had been incredibly patronising and completely dismissive of good faith attempts by the opposition and the public to engage with the documents and to improve the deal. She said the unseemly rush to ram this decision through Cabinet is inexplicable. So there is a lot there. And as I said, it's been going on for a good while. I've been on protests uh, myself against the hospital's move to St Vincent's It's happening now. The decision has been made. All of that protest and all of that really genuine anger among some of the public is not being heard or listened to. And I'll just say my overwhelming feeling is that we we as a country should be moving away from any links with the church when it comes to health or education. And we all know that the separation of church and state in so many areas is long overdue in this country. And I have huge respect for people such as uh, the woman I mentioned, former master of Hollow Street, Rona Mahoney, and many others. And I know that they fully believe that this is the right thing. I just wish it could have been a different place with no links to any religious organisation. I know a lot of you have feelings on this. So do email us, the women's podcast at irishtimes.com and let us know how you feel about this decision There is no doubt at all that the maternity services in the National Maternity Hospital in Hollow Street, as they stand, are not fit for purpose. I know many of you have given birth there. I had my twins there. And, you know, for a long time, it hasn't been a place where we should be putting women at this really important and vulnerable time. But I suppose what the question is, whether this will all come back to bite us in the long run. And that's the question a lot of people are asking. And I think those are legitimate questions. Now back to today's episode. In 2007, Amy Dunn was barely 17 years old and pregnant with a baby girl who had anencephaly, which meant that the baby was certain to die before 
or at birth. Now, Amy, who at the time was temporarily in care of the Irish state, told a social worker about her plan to travel for a termination. And although she was supported by her family and by the baby's father, she was told that it would not be possible for her to travel. And so she had to fight her case in the High Court. And her very private tragedy quickly escalated into an extremely public story. Amy is now in her 30s. And it's four years on since the Eighth Amendment was repealed. And she has a book called I Am Miss D. Amy Dunn, A Very Private Tragedy, A Very Public Case. And in that book, she reflects on the culture of shame that she and many other Irish women lived through. She wrote it with RT journalist Orla O'Donnell. And it's a really powerful story, ultimately a story of resilience and of a woman reclaiming her own narrative. She's an exceptional person, as you're going to hear, and I really hope you get something from this, particularly in the week that's in it. This is my conversation with Amy Dunn. Amy Dunn, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. We have watched your story over the years and admired you so much. And the first thing I want to say from all of us on the Women's Podcast is thank you for everything you did. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the time. You're very welcome. Your book is extraordinary. It's a really moving, powerful story. It's called I Am Misty, but the Misty is slashed out. It says, I am Amy Dunn, a very private tragedy, a very public case. And it's written with RT journalist Orla O'Donnell. We're going to talk about that very private case and what happened to you and all of that a bit later. But I wanted to just start off by getting a sense of you as a young person, as a child growing up and the challenges that you faced before all of this happened. So tell us about Amy Dunn as a young person. As a young person, well, when I was much, much younger, my memories of being a child was just arts and crafts and just always with my mom. I was stuck to her hip. I never left her side. We went to meditation centres. My mom worked with children doing art. We travelled to Galway, you know, doing making floats for parades. It was a very colourful childhood. I don't remember ever getting in trouble or any stresses ever being in my life when it was just us. And then my mom, she got in a relationship as a lot of women do. She got in a relationship with a man, which wasn't to say that that was a tragic moment. It was just a complete change in the the layout of my family and the setup. You know, I shared the bed with my mom and all of a sudden I had to go and sleep in my own room. So I remember that as a tragedy, even though it wasn't a bad thing. Um Slowly, I noticed with my mom at this stage, she started to fade almost in colour. If you can imagine, she was like a rainbow that started turning to this grey cloud. It's really only looking back in hindsight how you can see the difference and how it happened. She got a job in business. She had a business car. She wore a suit. We moved. We got a bigger, beautiful home. We watched being built. Things changed a lot, but still they were good. I had that lovely childhood where... On your Sundays, you had your your breakfast. Everyone had your breakfast together. And we went off to the mountains or Clarewellara. Things, things were very good for the first, I'd say, 11 years of my life. And then what happened? Um, it was a Father's Day. I remember my mom wasn't that much into football and she'd gotten us tickets to watch a match for Father's Day. And he never showed up and I never paid any heed to that. So I was just excited to get my little Coca-Cola and stuff and sit there. And then I remember being sent out to play my friends in the estate we had moved to. And all of a sudden, my mom pulls up in the Jeep with my uncle and my little sister in the car. And it was 
quite hurried and quick get in the car we have to go and that is literally where my life changed forever and um, I didn't know where we were going my mom had a good way of putting a positive spin on things and tried to make out we were going on a holiday but it was nighttime and she wasn't happy and but I wasn't aware of these feelings before I was confused and I was a preteen I was 12 and um, I'd seen a few arguments at home but not to this extent before I knew it I was in Drada, which I didn't even know how to pronounce. I call it Drogada back then. And it was late. And I just remember coming up to big gates um, and stable doors and being brought into what I didn't know at the time was a women's refuge. Because the relationship between your mum and your stepfather had deteriorated to that level. Yeah, it, it was, she, she didn't have a nice time. I've learned now growing up back then, I didn't understand. But yeah, it got to the, this was the safest place for us at the time. Unfortunately, Looking back, I believe a man should always leave the home and let the, the kids and the mother stay there. But that's not how it went. And I just remember being brought into a room with women and brought them into a playroom while my mom, I heard her crying in the other room, talking to the ladies. And I had to console my little sister, but I didn't know why. And, you know, while I was there, I saw a lot of things. Um, I began to be aware and learn a lot of situations in life that I wasn't aware of before having seen other families come in and even more tragic circumstances but it was a complete different change in life to be going from a beautiful big four-bedroom house to sharing a box room with bunk beds between three of us I remember we'd spend nights where I would share the bed with my little sister while my mom cried on the top bunk or vice versa she'd sleep with Claire while they cried and I was you know on the other bed I remember the moments of having to use a public shower and I never got any of my stuff back either. So I had no clothing. And I remember actually being excited that I was brought into a room with shelves with secondhand clothes. And I remember they were all labeled in sizes and ages. And I remember being able to p- pick out jeans and T-shirts. And I'm being appreciative of that, even though that wasn't something I grew up having to do. It was just a whole new life. I mean, it's um, such, um, just listening to the, you there and reading the book, such a huge, huge change at a very crucial age. You're coming into adolescence as well. You'd had this, like you say, lovely house, lovely secure home in Kildare. You're going to this place you didn't even know where you were. And you were starting to hear about situations and family um, crises that you wouldn't have had on your radar at all. And suddenly it sounds like a massive um growing up in a very short space of time because suddenly your mother as well, who you'd had this good relationship with up to then, is like, I, I think that description of the rainbow fading is, is a really, really powerful one. And you're so you have distance from her. I mean, I'm just interested in when you look back on that, like how it changed things for you as a person at the time. It changed my whole perception and outlook on life. I went from trusting and everything and feeling safe and secure to never knowing what was going to happen watching where our food came from, you know, not buying our food ourselves, our clothes ourselves, and um, losing our car, not even then having our car. My stepdad took the car off. My mom, we had we had nothing. So, you know, I look back and I appreciate that now because I appreciate everything I have and I always will. It's sad that I had to go through that to learn so much, but I learned so many lessons in life. And, you know, even back then when I was in the Women's Refuge, I learned to appreciate that my life wasn't as bad as some of the other families that were coming in. I mean, you saw the marks and the scars and 
upheaval of the families coming in and women a lot younger than my mum was at the time. It was crazy. And I was going through puberty as well. I mean, I was just starting to grow and everything was grossing me out and I was uncomfortable. And, you know, you know, just because it's for women, there's boys staying there too. There's kids there too. We had to share a TV room. We had to share a kitchen. We, we shared everything but the bed we slept on. And, you know, I never saw a way out. And I feel like the relationship with my mom of dependency disappeared because as the days went on there, my mom was less of a mother to us in a sense. I don't mean she was a bad person, but she was finding it really hard to cope with what she was going through, let alone try and counsel us and help us understand what was going on. I don't think she knew herself. And I think still then she hoped one day we would all go back home and things would all be better and raise sunshine, which just never happened. Now, Amy, I want to say this because it's really important. I know that and it's it's really beautiful to see at the end of the book that you have this good relationship with your mother now, very supportive. That, that feels like that magic that you can remember is back, which is really lovely. And I'm sure you work on that every day, considering everything that's gone on. But it was difficult for you. So as much as you want to say, um, because I, I totally appreciate that relationship is good now and you don't want to kind of be sabotaging it with anything else. But can you explain to us exactly what happened with your mother and why you were taken into care? Yes. Yeah, so as you said, you know, our relationship is amazing now. And, you know, every woman has their moments and isn't perfect at all times. So I don't hold any hurt for this. But this is my story. And to an extent, I will say what happened. My mom had her own property in Dublin, which she sold, which gave us the money to go and rent our, our own place. Where we rented was more of a derelict area up at the factory grounds. There were six to eight houses. And so there was nobody around. It was a very, very lonely place. And the house was very old and very big and very scary. My mom did her best with her money to upgrade the house to a, a good standard of living. I just remember over time, my mom would take us to the shops. And she'd buy a bottle of champagne and buy us treats, myself and my little sister, she'd buy us loads of treats. And we'd be so excited to have this shop run as well. And she'd come home and that was fine. And she had a drink. I'd never seen my mom drink before. So this was new to me. It just almost feels like a moment. It went from buying a bottle of champagne every month to every two weeks. Then it was every week. And, and then it was, it was daily. And then it was morning times too. And at this stage, I was just after starting secondary school. And to get from secondary school to my house to walk, I would never even know where I was. And I know there was times where there was problems with the bus and or I, my mom would have to collect me and be forgotten or and I'd come home from school. And I do remember my mom, my mom used to always say that me and her was going to run away to Galway forever. And now when I'd come home, her and my little sister were going to run away forever. I was the terror teenager who was calling her out on what was going on and feeling unsafe and uncomfortable. And I'm aware now of why she was. So she was on medication, the doctor had given her, which she'd never heard of before either. So not only was she drinking, she was taking antidepressants and the rest along with it too, which, you know, it, it led to me seeing behaviours that I had hoped that no child would really ever have to see. I saw states of depression where I prayed, was my mom going to wake up um, many times? It got really hard and it was very lonely. I had no one to talk to. I had no family up here. And I'm not sure if my own family in Dublin was aware of what was going on because, of course, she wasn't going to turn around and say she had a problem. I know it was her cry for help, but there was nobody there to catch her. And I was trying my best. And then eventually my little sister started going to her dad's a lot more, you know, 
which broke my heart too, because I felt forgotten about as well, you know. Your your little sister is spending more time with her dad, who's different to your dad. So you kind of feel it. Um, you're in the middle of this abandoned. You're you're trying to catch, as you say, your mum, who's going through this absolutely dysfunctional time, and it's causing havoc for you. And you're you're feeling very lost. And and I suppose that's when you got um had to be taken into care at that point. So we moved. We eventually moved up to a, a different area in the state, which was a normal standard of an area, and. While we were here, I was starting to be embarrassed and ashamed. This is where this all became because I was looking all around me and everyone had a mother and a father and nobody was renting their house. And I didn't understand, but I only ever understood us feeling secure and owning a house. So to me, you know, I know nowadays that's regular, but back then it scared me. And I felt I felt I didn't fit in alone, along with the fact that now we were in an area where your neighbours could hear what was going on next door, where they could see the drama outside. They could, it was something then I was really trying to hide even more. So the comfort of having people around brought along its own bad things as well. I was really, really embarrassed. It's at this stage where my mom started getting more social and she would make friends in local bars. Alcoholic with another alcoholic is mayhem. And, you know, sometimes I come home and these people I didn't know would be in my house, but my little sister would be in her dad's. So I became a chaotic teenager. One minute I was playing my Barbies and next minute I was out with bad boys driving around in stolen cars, doing anything. Just, just even though we say they're bad guys, these guys came along and they were demanding my attention for a while. And I needed that. I needed something, security. I didn't see the badness in them. I saw guys being nice to me. So the more my mom took to the bottle, the more I took to the streets and, you know, social workers became aware of the situation. And from there on out, I was in and out of foster cares. I ran away and I always felt like a nuisance to everybody while all of this was going on. Um, but at the same time, the positive is what I take from that is I saw so many different lifestyles that I learned beautiful, different things from them families. And it reminded me of what real family life is like, even though I wasn't a part of theirs. It reminded me of what I wanted and what I'd strive to have in my own life. Mm. And you were, so this a very chaotic situation. You were sort of separated from your mum. Had you kind of given her up at this stage, like as a, as a, as a nurturer, as somebody you could rely on? Was that completely gone? No, I never gave up on my mum. Um, my mom went into clinics many times as well. That's really when I'd be taken into care. You know, my mom really did try to get support and to stop. But she was surrounded by people in the same downfall and spiral. So every time she'd get it together and she'd go back to her friends, they, I'd just have a drink. I know that's how it happened. I, I never gave up my mom. But to be honest with you, I went through so many different emotional traumas. But then was grateful she wasn't dead. And then I would go back to her. And then, you know, I was a disobedient teenager. She had no respect for her at this stage anymore. So things were very toxic between the two of us. Yeah. Um, so eventually you are in a relationship then with somebody. Tell us about that and, and about the desire to have a, a child yourself at a very, very young age. Yeah, so I got with this guy when I was, I lied about my age. I said I was 14, I was 13. He was a part of the groups that used to come around to me. And I remember he was my safety. He was so possessive of me. I found that secure. Nothing was going to happen to me. I wasn't allowed to leave aside. And 
we quickly, we were inseparable and deeply in love. I did get a job when I was 16, though, and realized, you know, there's more things to life. And I wanted, I had it. I did have this hunger for education. I'd left school while I was with him. I was being bullied and all these different things, which is in my book. But then I went and got a job. We split up and it was, it was a hard time while we were broke up. He was having a hard time accepting that we were broke up. And I was having a hard time still at home and I felt out of place. But with this guy, he knew everything that was going on in my life. I felt normal with him. We eventually, we were talking about getting back together. And I, I think I was just trying to scaremonger him about wanting a child. It was just a little notion. I never forget the moment on the bed asking him to have a baby. And I didn't expect him to agree. And I was so flattered somebody wanted a baby with me. And, and Amy, just to go back a little bit, just for listeners and people who won't have read the book, just tell us about the age difference, though, as well, because 13 is so um, I've I've two girls about to turn 13 in my house, so it's all ahead of me. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sort of visualizing them and I'm thinking of you. Uh, what, how old was this person when you got involved with him? He was two years older. I quickly turned 14 and he was 16, you know. As well, I feel like women are mentally older. He was only a young child too, though, and, and that did come up because I around social workers, you know, there was, and I actually stood up for teenagers with the age of sexual consent before I got pregnant because it's not fair on men in these situations. I made my own decisions to do what I wanted to do. When he agreed to have a baby with me, we didn't necessarily try to have a child. But I was obviously quite fertile with the moments I became pregnant with not using protection. It was through a situation at home where I was brought to hospital and we became aware that I was pregnant while while lying in the hospital. And yeah, we all cried. But with the moments, we were all delighted because we both had bad backgrounds at this stage. And times are different back then than they are now. I have a 13 year old and I whoop his ass if I even thought I was holding hands with somebody. So um. well, no, that's what I that's what I want to before we move on to the main part of your story. I'm I'm curious about that because you know you were sexually active at 13, 14, um, 14, 14. It's, and you look at your son now and I'm just thinking about my daughters and, and we all have our own, uh, stories and backgrounds. So I'm not putting any judgment at all on it because every, every one of us has had things in their lives. Do you look at yourself at 14 now and think differently about, um, what you what you were doing and and you know that you were a child essentially in a in a, a sexual relationship with with somebody and again without I, I think it's really admirable that you've you've said you don't want to put um shame or blame on on the guy involved you know what I mean because he was also damaged in in, in a way as well but do you look at yourself now with a bit of kind of oh my god I was only 14 what was I what was I doing I did, but but when I compare myself to even my own son, because he's of the age where I've been watching like a hawk because it was 12 when, you know, you start having this group of friends or that and you go one way or another. And I'm on top of him. I think I was a lot more mature. I thought I was a woman looking after myself a lot. You know, I was very independent for my age. I saw myself a lot older than I was looking back. Oh, my God. You know, I keep me up all night to think that my son did even a quarter of the things I could up to. But at the same time, times have changed. It was nearly a fashion to get pregnant back in my day and age. Maybe it was just around the areas that I ended up living in. It was completely different. I think kids now with social media, they're aware that 
it's not cute to have a child, that you can't do things that you can't do when you don't. You know, there's careers out there. There's a life out there besides children. But for us back then, there wasn't much more. There was nothing to my life, I felt anyways. So, you know, I I did what I did. I, I think it's crazy only when I compare it, looking at my son, who I think is still a baby. You know, I'm still trying to tell him, you know, get rid of that little mustache you have because I can't bear to look at it. Like, you're only a baby. Stop. And he's like, no. <laughs> Thanks for that, because I think it's really interesting and your perspective is very interesting too. And it's, of course, we have to look at the time and the different ways we were we're all uh, thinking. I just think it's an interesting one. You were 16 when you found out you were pregnant. And then on your 17th birthday was when you had the big scan. And, and we should say then that there was that delight. It did grow into this joy um, at going to have a baby, even if it might have been a little bit of a funny way that it happened in terms of, you know, you were sort of saying to him, oh, yeah, well, I want to have a baby. And it was a bit of a joke. And then it happened. And then you really wanted that baby. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had literally nothing else in my life for stability at this stage. So in my, you know, it's a, it's a cute, naive little thought I had in my head of building my own little Barbie home family, you know, mommy, daddy and baby, and we'll all live happily ever after. Yes, that's silly. And I've seen people criticize me for that online, but, you know, just read my story and you'll understand me more, you know. But yeah, so I found out I was pregnant and we, we went for the scan on my 17th birthday. That was, We were all delighted. We'd already started buying the nappies, the baby grows, the whole family. It was something positive. You know, it happened. So we had to deal with it. So it was a positive thing on both sides of the family. Something to look forward to in life now. Something to fight for and try and be better for. And there was no time, Amy, that you thought about having an abortion. like Because at that time, people would have been thinking to travel and sometimes there was no knowledge of abortion I wasn't aware of abortion we didn't grow up being taught these things and we didn't have social media it was never going to be something that I would ever have I wish I'd never had to get into and learn about but so be it it's how it is now but um yeah so I went to the hospital all excited to find out the gender of the baby like the baby I was myself and in the hospital the nurse performed a scan and I do remember she looked very confused um not enough to worry me to what I was about to hear she didn't tell me what the what she was concerned about she just got a in a doctor in um the doctor confirmed that Jasmine had an encephaly I mean to me at that age and only for having to go through it all it's gibberish an encephaly what is it you know and then basically he, he explained it in young terms my child had no skull she was not viable with life and I feel like I didn't get enough information I didn't need anymore once I heard that I ran out of the hospital panicked I left we ran we got in a taxi we went home we told our parents our mothers and they thought we were being dramatic it couldn't be that bad how could it so they went back to the hospital and it was the diagnosis was confirmed and it was in this moment I remember being in the sitting room in my in my partner's house at the time and I was like what am I go- what am I going to do what am I going to do uh, abortion wasn't an option and I know people are disgraced that the way I describe this this is not how I describe this now but yes I'm being honest at that age when you're told the description of what Anna Kefli is I did feel like this what is this aberration of nature like I take this away from my stomach get it away now I can't stay five minutes more along I feel uncomfortable gross there's something in there and it's not a child that's how I felt back then so immediately I turned to Google I researched how to fix Anne and Kessley what it was 
every detail in and out. I watched videos, I seen pictures, my brain, I was, I couldn't sleep at night. The things I seen is horrible. Like I can't look at it to this day and I don't think anybody should. So I did everything in my power before I crossed abortion. And then I was like, yeah, okay, well, that's, that's, I don't like the word, but that's what it is to take the baby out of your stomach. And that's what I need to do is get the baby out of my stomach. So within that, I was went to my active role of parents, the social workers, and uh, explained the condition <laughs> to get support and help, obviously, is what I assumed. And within minutes, with no empathy for what was going on, not even to look up what the condition was, I was just told straight away, I will be done for murder if I go ahead with this and anyone who comes along with me will be done as an accomplice to murder. He quickly contacted the guardy and the passport office to have stock put on a passport to which they denied they could have any right to do. Obviously of my age, when I'm told I can't do something, I believed, well, okay, like I can't, that's, I can't do anything about this. I didn't know what to do. My head went to very dark places. Um, it was only somebody whispered to my mother. I feel like, nearly saved my life, said, get a solicitor. And surely when I rang a solicitor, I didn't expect the road to happen that led to this whole big high court case. I'm grateful that this solicitor listened and understood that that was against my rights as a human to be stopped from doing this. And my circumstances were very tragic. And with a moment, that was it. We ended up in another whirlwind of trauma. This podcast is brought to you by ShapeModa.com. Log on today to find your perfect fit. So, I mean, you, you talk about the series of um, emergency court hearings. I mean, it was international news. It wasn't just national news. You you were suddenly a story, like a news story. You were misty. This is what they named. You didn't even know that before that there'd been, you know, other alphabet women as as you might call them b c and you were now one of those in the middle of this massive um storm media storm can you describe to us about what that was like for you with this very visceral feeling that you needed to end this pregnancy and also having to go through all of that uh very disorienting angry now every time when it even comes up and every time i talk about this i get more angry i can't comprehend how tons of, I'm sorry, but men decided the fate of what I would do with my body. I I really don't get this. And it's not being sexist, you know, everyone has the right to this and the other, but how come men were able to stand in a courtroom and tell me what they could do with my body when they can't empathize? They don't have ovaries. It's, it's enrages me that this happened. If this happened now, I'd be damning the whole courtroom. But back then they were adults and I thought they were all there to look after me. It was still a very strange thing to understand. But at the start of that, like, I'm so mad when I even think about that now. Why is that even still happening? Why is there men making these decisions? But, you know, at the same time, I had a male solicitor who was looking after me too. So I'm grateful for that. It was a very, very horrible situation to have a phone call with a solicitor and next of all, be the front page of articles and on the daily news and before we get into the fact that I was misty 
my personal tragedies that happened in my family were being broadcast over the daily news. The social workers were trying to paint a picture that we were incapable of making rational decisions by ourselves. I was brought to many psychiatric hospitals and evaluated like what that does to a young mind, to anyone's mind, to make them question themselves is disgusting. I remember them moments and I will remember them for the rest of my life. I remember the social worker sitting in with me and when they would say how amazing I was and how great and mature and sound minded I was, I remember the social worker telling me, you know, maybe you should just stay here anyways and take the rest and relax. And it's disgusting. And things like, but thank God for my partner back then. He was so possessive that no way was he leaving me in a hospital on my own. I wasn't leaving his side. And it was that that saved me from being kept in because I was naive and my arm could have been twisted. I, I, I felt uncomfortable, but I didn't know who was with me or who was against me. It became very confusing. The people who were closest to me were at times the ones trying to go against me and battle with me and, and, and bring me down. And I would have to listen to... You know, I know I am grateful for the pro-choice people now, but when I was young and I was going into court, all I heard was screams. It was very intimidating on both sides, pro-life, pro-choice. That was very, very nerve-wracking for me. And I, yeah, my face was blurred, but we all knew who I was walking to a courtroom. I was the only child going into a high court. You know, I had um, people, I had a man come and pray over me with rosary beads telling me I was evil. Um, you know, I, I realized then it was an open court and, Anyone could go in and listen to my very, very, very private business and tragic situation. And I almost feel like, you know, it wasn't about Jasmine or Anna Kefley or me. Everybody used me as an example for the legal constitution of the rights to abortion, blah, blah. I'm not a lawyer, but that that's what it became. It wasn't, it was not about me personally anymore. This was about men. TDs, using me for votes, using me for elections, you know. I'd look at papers of the yes side, the no side, and be tormented daily. It, it was disgusting. You're so articulate and you're describing it so well. I can't even imagine what that must have been like because on the one hand, you had people outside anti-abortion people protesting, you know, giving out about you. And then you had other people who were supporting you I suppose in their eyes but that wasn't supportive either because you were this thing in the middle being dangled as a kind of prop or a toy to be used for either side's argument so your humanity your very humanity seemed to be gone that's what it feels like when you talk about it yeah I was a shell and I became a shell through that I saw less love for myself and had no love for myself I I feel like a piece of crap and that the embarrassment of my stories being shared everywhere where I really, really didn't feel like I mattered. Not one person in the world at the time. That's, I feel unfair. And my mother, I even feel looking back, I remember her hurt, but it was her hurt of her daughter. It's different. You know, I really felt invisible. It took me a long time to get my love back and more, even only in recent times. But you know, I'm even getting shaky, you know, talking about that. It, it was it was a really, really horrible time that I wish no one else would ever have to go through. And if anyone had to go through it nearly, I'm glad it was me, in a sense, because I know I'm here today and I'm strong and I'm, I'm able for it, you know. And we're really grateful. And I'm sorry if any of this gives you, um, it's difficult because I, 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 the thing people don't really realise, I think, with these things, it doesn't matter how many times you tell 
your story. You know, when it's something like that, you're reliving it and you're re-traumatized, you know, and I'm very conscious of that. So I just don't want to add. But um, let's move on to three weeks later when the judge ruled that this Miss D person um, could leave the country and you um, were praised for your maturity and your honesty as well. Um, I don't know if that meant anything. and, and it was, That meant everything. Yeah. That meant everything. That's the only sentence of positivity through the whole thing. That's the only few words I've had to hold on to through my whole life since this happened. That has meant more than anything really ever. It sticks out a million miles. I held on to that. And I knew if a high court judge could recognise I was a good person and of a sound mind, I, I'm okay. You know, I, that's the only bit I held on to. And also that the HSE had failed you, basically, as well, was the other thing. So yeah. that you were vindicated from that point of view. The people who were supposed to be looking after you and have your back totally failed you. And and this person and a very, one of those men that you talked about earlier, actually <laughs> came good and said yeah, the, the right I'm things. I'm not saying all men are bad. I, I know you're not at all, Amy. It's very I know. hard. I have to make that clear. I think, you know, it'd be very hard for me to to say my opinion on what a man should do with certain circumstances, say if it's sex to me, you know, who am I? I'm not a man. I don't have them things. <laughs> but, you know, so I just think, you know, it goes that way. But yeah, the judge was amazing. He praised me. And when I found out I had won, this is the thing as well. I didn't feel like I won. I was petrified because now the noise was over. Everyone was gone. I was left to make my own decision. The pressure at that age that that took on because during the court case, I was second guessing if I wanted an abortion, was I doing the right thing? Because I mean, I was looking at, you know, you had a lot of pro-life um, pushing their way into me and I felt like a terrible person. And I was still a bit clueless about Jasmine's condition only for the fact that, and even the judgment years later, I realized Jasmine was actually very deteriorated in my body and I did do the right thing. But back then I didn't know. Um, and that was another new start where I was on my own and nobody else could make this decision for me. It was on me. I remember being in the family planning clinic and they're amazing, but there's only so much they can do to guide you. They can't help you pick. And I remember looking at the leaflet, as I described, as like a menu and having to pick which which procedure I'd like to go ahead with. But so thankfully, she understood I wasn't comfortable with any of the procedures only because my child had grown so much through this court case. You know, at this stage, I'd really connected with Jasmine. She was a baby to me. She, I felt her first flutters in a taxi on the way to the, to the court case. You know, I, I was a mom now at this stage and I was so grateful to be given the choice for an induced delivery, uh, which meant I was doing everything you would do at full term but I was just doing it earlier to have her taken out and to keep me healthy and safe as well and give her the dignity I felt she deserved. So off I went to England with our two mothers and my partner. And even at that, going to the airport to go to England. So now I was aware that many people's trips to England were for abortion. And of course I had a bump and, you know, these people had not clue who I was in the airport, but I was so paranoid going through that airport, going to England with the bump on my belly. That's another little scarred memory in my head. And then having to settle into a hotel and be grateful for the food vouchers and the bits and bobs that we were given. And it was just all disgusting to me. And even over there, I was very alone. I wasn't with, I feel, sound-minded people while I was there, you know. 
my partner was a smoker. He was able to switch off, uh, which really angered me that I was sick and going through all this alone. My mom still had her addiction and I wasn't very close to my partner's mother either. And it was like one of her first holidays and she was off shopping for jerseys. For, for I'll never forget that for, for the kids, you know. And I remember them bringing back McDonald's and me just being disgusted. Of course, they needed to keep everything just disgusted me because I was in this situation. It was on a Thursday when I was brought in to be induced. And it's a compassionate um, induction is what they call it, Amy. Is that right? Yeah, a compassionate induction. And still for years, it stuck with me. Everybody's calling it abortion. And silly girl, she had no, I didn't. I delivered, Jasmine. I spent 16 hours in labour, more than I did on my son. It was, it was a proper delivery. It was so painful and unforgettable for the rest of my life. Um, but I'm very glad I did it. It was 16 hours of labour. It started at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And it was near the end, like the last few hours, where I was not able for the pain anymore. And at this stage, I didn't know Jasmine had passed away already. And um, my mom knew, but they knew not to tell me because I was so young. And I was thinking, she could come out perfect. They could have got it wrong. And she could come out perfect and breathing. And we'll all live happily ever after. I still always had that in my head. Well, I remember my mom insisting on me taking the painkillers and, you know, I'd refused all day long not to harm her. But I remember that look in her eyes and her holding my hand and her telling me to trust her. So I went ahead and I took the medication and um, a while later I delivered Jasmine and it was painful. And I'll never forget the feeling what it felt like when she came out because she wasn't alive. So it was a different, having had that is really different. But sure, I was so young, I didn't even know what afterbirth was. And that was next to come. I was like, what? What? There's something else to push out? And that was bigger than the baby itself. And that that scared me. And But after that, I, I passed out from medication and the tiredness I'd been through, everything, the emotion. She was rushed off. I fell asleep. By the time I woke up, everyone had gotten to grips with what, no, to an extent, of what had happened. I had a lovely room and Jasmine was in a room connected to mine. I remember my ex being emotional for the first time ever in his life. That broke my heart. I will never forget that moment for as much as I hold a grudge against things. I saw the real person there. He put me in a wheelchair and asked me, did I want to go and see our daughter? And he'd wheel me in. And every time I'd get to the door, I'd get closer. I'd, I'd go back. I, I wasn't with it. I was so, oh my God, emotions. You can't explain what I was feeling. I'm terrified of seeing her. I remember seeing that she took up such a small fraction of the baby bed and I go in and, you know, each time I go in, I go in and I touch her and I actually, (laughs) I, damn it. It's just, it's just, it's so real. Like, you know, I go in and, I remember her whole hand resting on my pinky finger and how cute it was and being amazed that she had nails and toes, little tiny toes. And I remember flicking her nails and her toes and moving them and how dainty and small and her little her little kneecaps. And I remember the hospital band being wrapped around her belly because she was so small. Even though she was so small, she was a baby she was a real fully formed baby to me yeah so 
you know, the nurses I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for because they took photos and footprints, things that obviously I wasn't aware to do at that age. And I'm not getting emotional because <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my best here because it brings me to a different, a different place. I not to, <laughs> you know, I remember afterwards and trying to pick clothes and my partner saying, let's put a dress on there. And it didn't fit, it was way too big, but we weren't going to touch her to do it. It was the nurses. And I still look back at them like, I wish I was able to dress her. I wish I was able to hold her. I wish I'd been given time to, to see her face. That doesn't get easier. That gets harder. My wondering spirals out of control and um, you know the curiosity of wanting to know with my daughter you know and the, the, the jealousy I have for the people who have seen her and who did lift her like the priest who came to bless her I remember the innocence of me being annoyed that she didn't get a birth cert obviously I understand now she didn't read so she wasn't considered you know, a, a living person. Well, obviously she was to me and she was my child, but I was really angry that he got to hold her. And people say like, oh, she chose not to hold her. What 17 year old girl given like an hour or two to process the whole situation has the courage to lift up such a dainty baby. And if that had happened in Ireland, I surely would have been given more time. Or if I drove home, made a mistake, I could go back. I had a flight to catch and that became everybody's priority. I mean, that's, that had to be, we had to get, get the flight. And um, I screamed and I, I held on to the walls as I was taken out of, the, out of the hospital. And I, I really, effing pisses me off, to be honest, especially as a grown woman. I even think like whoever organized this, it's not you go in and you pop out a kid, God forgive me to say it like that, and then off you pop home. It's no consideration or empathy was put into this the the situation I was about to entail at all. And I wasn't grown up enough to organize this myself. Yes, I said no, I don't want to leave, but I had to do what I was told once again. That's the biggest scar on me for life. Even when you were in the situation where you were free from all that uh, court stuff, when the, the the noise had gone, you still weren't the person being looked after and supported. And there was a compassionate induction, but there was no compassion for you, it sounds like, pretty much in that oh, situation. Oh, what it was, was, right, okay, she won. Get her over to England, get the situation going, get her back, let's all forget about it, let's all move on and be happy ever after. That's what it was to me, that's how I see it as a grown adult and I know that's how it was and I do understand people are not connected to me and they're doing their jobs fair enough but my god was there no soul or heart given into this at all for everything I'd been put through before the court in the court and then afterwards like give the girl a break give me some love think of me please nobody did and I was too young to think of what I needed back then as well I never knew I knew I wanted to see her but I never knew it haunt me for the rest of my life Tell me about the aftermath for you, Amy, uh, the next few years where you were at in your head, the impact it all had on you. Well, just after that as well, tabloids were destroying my life. My friends were selling photographs of me, which I was glad to be able to fix in my documentary and show the dates on the back of the pictures. People saw photos of me holding bottles of Smirnoff ice, trying to make out that I did what I did to Jasmine. I wasn't pregnant. I was young drinking in a pub, but I, I wasn't pregnant when this happened. So I felt, I got paranoid. Everyone was against me. I couldn't trust anybody. 
I quickly became pregnant on Adam. Obviously, I was very young to have a second pregnancy at 17. So myself, my partner, we weren't in the cute little place we were anymore. We were in turmoil. There was no love anymore or romance. It was, you know, he actually had to take me on as a, a dependent. I felt like there again, I'm in another annoyance for somebody else. And our chemistry completely disappeared. It was just complete toxic arguments. It got worse and worse. I was trying to go back to school. I was trying to go to school and hide a pregnancy again. And people like hearing people whispering at the back of me. And it was a lot of hurt and heartache for a long period of time. But then, yes, I had Adam. And like the whole fear of the pregnancy and the delivery. But my God, has he been the biggest ray of sunshine that I have ever needed And he was meant to be there for me because I know because of my story, I could have went down a very bad road. I had nobody. And the minute he was born, I enrolled back in school. Like I went and got my leave. I went back to school after four weeks. I had no support with my partner at this stage. And when I was socializing with women and stuff like that, women older than me doing this leave insert, I realized I wasn't in a great situation at home. And it was it was very, 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 very nasty. And because Adam was there, I look back and I'm like, wow, I separated from his father when he was one. So I was only 18 and I made that decision. I was going to go it alone and he wasn't going to see the arguments that were happening at home anymore. And he wasn't going to have that terrible life. And I did everything in my power. I went back to college. I held down two and three jobs at a time. And at this stage, my mom realized I needed help and she wasn't the person causing the problem. It was a male and to her almighty God, I don't know what happened with this woman, but very quickly she became my saving grace again when Adam was born and, and I was, had become a single mom. She has basically been a co-parent with me since this happened. She has been the one who has supported me for me to have an education to get somewhat of a social life and experience all the things that I have in life the woman has made up for everything tenfold if I'm hungry and I'm in Timbuktu she'll bring me a sandwich she just she doesn't stop you know and she's been she's been a great adult for Adam to have as well because now I'm looking at what she did with me when I was really small the arts and crafts and she has Adam doing all them beautiful natural things with like technology and everything else you know because my generation we put them in front of iPads and sh- <laughs> so it's so lovely that he gets to have what I had when I was younger mm. I mean it's it, that is such a blessing and a beautiful thing I'm so glad that you were able to experience that and I'm so glad you were able to have your mother as as you say a savior and as someone who's has your back now and I hope she's doing okay is she? My mom is doing awesome like she's she's such an amazing woman and um, she makes handmade organic soaps she works with children with different kinds of disabilities at the moment she's doing a um a women's program for self-defense wow. like every time I look at her she's either making <laughs> a handbag or a bar of soap I don't know what I'm going to get brought into the house next you know. Has she worked through all her issues and her problems? Like my mom has been like before the book came out, my mom was doing great. She's been great for years. She's been a happy go getter, go look. And that's what I've learned from my mom. She might not always get where what she wants, where she wants to be, but she tries so hard and she doesn't stop. And I've learned that as well. It's not all about the one win. 
it's about doing loads of different things. And I've learned so many beautiful aspects of life through her. It was hard with the book coming out because he had to accept a lot of things. And who wants to read? I, would, I wouldn't want to read a book from my son saying I caused him heartache or what they'd been through. So some people's stories are they never get better. And she's become amazing. We're like best friends. Tell me about you now, Amy. Tell me about you and Adam and your life and what you're up to. Apart from publicising this excellent book, which everyone needs <laughs> to buy. It's called I Am Amy Dunn. Yeah, I've had so many different thoughts of what I want to do with my career. I still don't know where I'm meant to be, but I know I can smell and feel that something good is coming for me. I I believe whatever I'm going to do, I want to help other people. And I've learned I'm very good at talking. <laughs> so maybe someone could pay me to talk. But where besides that, uh, myself and Adam, we're like best friends. We live alone together. We've gone holidays together. We go on trips together, you know. But now he's a teenager. So that's slowed down a little bit. But we I always make sure every day we have dinner together. And Sunday is family time, dinner time as well. We still keep the little things alive. But right now I'm an embarrassment. You know, even though I think I'm cool and I'm young, everything I say and do and wear, I'm making a show of him. So we're in that place right now. But I know he loves me. Um, I don't think he really understands what's going on with this book. Every time I'm like, look at this. He's like, yeah, cool, mom. Listen, I need to talk to you about coming out about your story and owning your story a bit more because, you know, you were a big part of um, repealing the eighth. I was I was struck by one thing you said um, as someone who had an abortion, had an abortion after a one night stand. You know, I went to England because I didn't want a baby. You know, I didn't want a baby and I didn't want to have it. It's, it's so far different to your situation, you know, and I totally acknowledge that I didn't want a baby. It wasn't the right time for me. But at one point, I think you had um, you would have been someone who would have judged someone like me, which I, you know, which is I think you're really honest about in the book. And I'm just curious as to how eventually you came to think about women like me or anybody who needs an abortion or needs to do whatever they need to do. I think that was an amazing path in my life of learning and listening, which I think so many more people should do. Yes, I did say that, yeah, you should only have an abortion in serious circumstances because that's all the knowledge I had. And that's there was no other noise around me telling me any different. But my God, have I learned and have I put myself in their shoes, in her shoes? And I thought, hold on, going back to even an ex who wasn't healthy to be with and could have destroyed me mentally for the rest of my life or financially. What would I do if I had a wooden ice stand? These... It's only when you listen to other people, (laughs) you realize there's not just one way or another. And there's so many other things. I heard stories with people being raped. You know, if they think that they're going to not be able to cope with this, then why should they have to? You're not. Them people making them decisions are not going to come to their houses and help them with that baby. The people who can't have a baby and choose to get rid of it because they can't afford it. Are you going to pay for that baby to make her keep it? You know what I mean? There's so many different situations. And I'm blessed I've learned that and been able to express that through time. God knows if I might end up having to have one in the future or not. I've learned. There's so many different circumstances. And another one there I read as well when I was younger, a woman had cancer, but she had kids and she had a husband. She was pregnant. It was a choice between the cancer treatment and the child. Like, come on, people, you know, get with it. It's, and I'm, I'm hearing since my story came out, there's stories I've been sent all the way from Canada 
from everywhere. Nobody should have to suffer in this silence. And when people are saying you can't have your abortion, you can't do what you want to do, you are nearly taking their life away. You don't know where people's mental states are. You think you look at somebody's cover, their face, their makeup, whatever their background is, and you prejudge them. You do not know what is going on in somebody's head. And when somebody makes a decision about abortion, they do not make it lightly. They've all, it's a very, very deep decision to make. And people should mind their own business and let, let us do what we need to do. Here, here. And and you were very much part of the repeal movement. You did stand up and you did speak out about your situation. And I hope that you feel um, proud is probably a strange word, but I've, I'm proud of you. Do you feel proud of yourself? You know what? I am proud of myself. I probably wouldn't have said that two weeks ago. But with all of the support and love and learning the millions, millions of us, the amount of us, you know, even girls who haven't had a situation, nearly all of them can, can relate because they've ovaries and it could happen to them. So the amount of support that I've gotten has made me look back and even, do you know what, reading my book, I've taken myself out of, of my shoes and as another person, I'm like, oh my God, I, I went through a lot. How can I not be proud? I can't shit on myself anymore. I only have one life. God knows how long I'm going to be here for. I'm my own worst critic and I need to give it over. And yeah, I am proud of myself. And anyone else who thinks different, that's their business. Basically, you're an activist now, whether you like it or not, Amy. Go women. Yeah, (laughs) go everybody. But you deserve all the great things and all of your dreams to come true. You deserve it all. And I I, I started by, I, I want to thank you so much because... Yeah, I'm just in awe of you and I'm very, very, very grateful for everything that you and your story and you speaking out did to help people understand why it was so important that women got control of their own bodies and their own their own lives in that way. And I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Have you one more final thing you'd like to say about any of this? Just maybe because of all the stories I've seen for any girls listening to this. I give it I hope it gives them comfort to know because that's why I did this, that they're not alone and they're a great person. And whatever choices they have decided to make, do not let anybody make them feel lesser of a person for doing it. They need to block it out and give themselves a pat on the back and hug their hearts and love themselves. It's not it's not okay and it's not fair. Sometimes life is not fair, but love yourself. That's really, really it. I've just seen so much, so much broken stories, and it's just crazy that it's still happening. Please don't let people break you down. Do what you need to do for you. Thank you, Amy Dunn. Absolute legend. And I hope we have (laughs) you back on the podcast to talk about other things and find out what you do in the future because you are a force to be reckoned with now and you go and do whatever it is you want to do. That's what I think. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That's all we have time for. Thank you so much to Amy Dunn, no longer Miss D, but fully a great woman in her own right. And I look forward to having her back on to see how things go for her. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast and by email the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>